Good morning, Captain. Oh, hello. How are you way up there? I am way up here. Hello. Pretty good. How is your uh, morning coverage of uh, Google I.O. going? Are you uh, through the, the big line and into the, on, the, on the floor? Are you, uh, are, you, are you kidding me or do you really want to know? I, well, <laughs> yeah. right, I'll tell you if you really want to know. You ready? <laughs> yeah, I'm ready. Hello, Dan. I'm reporting to you live here from the floor at Google I.O. There's a lot of Google and a lot of ins and outs, a lot of what have you. There's a whole lot of reporting on tab OS Chrome Android. <laughs> oh, my God. It's going to be it's going to be a huge, huge day. This is a big I have, day. I got so many tabs open, man. I'm like a, I'm like an acid dealer on acid. It's crazy. I got tabs everywhere. I'm Did following they? live blogs. <laughs> I'm following because because you know you wouldn't want to wait until no. later in the morning to find out what happened. No, you've got to you've got to watch the whole time. Be involved. Well, going to uh, cover my reporting on that. Uh, you know, you go you can find me in the usual places. It's a uh, kung fu gripe. That's right. I'm kung on. I'm up there on uh, Live Splat. I'm there on Time Sporp. Um, I'm there on uh, Sporkfest. <laughs> uh, I'm there on Pounce. I haven't checked that lately. I'm pretty sure it's still up. Uh, I'm 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 basically covering the waterfront, as we say in the Google community. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yep, really looking forward to uh, the next release. You know, sometimes it doesn't get onto the older phones, and I think that's a problem that I've addressed a lot in my reporting. Yeah. Yes, it's, it takes, the, it's the internet of things. Takes time. It takes time. It takes updates. Uh, you're you're going to want to get more throughput on your Ethernet bus, <laughs> and uh, for the full immersive <laughs> touch interface, you should probably have a drink and uh, just at least talk a little bit. Wow, what an exciting day. How are you doing, Dan? I'm, I'm all right. I was weird earlier on Tuesday. <laughs> you were weird earlier? Well, I had, like starting Sunday, I had a pain in my eye sockets that felt like there were hooks in there pulling up and forward. It was really bad and it got worse on Monday. And I, it, you know, like every time you move your eyes or look around, it would hurt. But I didn't have any other symptoms other than just not feeling a hundred percent, but I couldn't place it. I couldn't figure out what it was. And then on Monday, I, uh, I started feeling feverish, uh, or Tuesday rather, I started feeling feverish and wrong. And, um, and I took my temperature, which I don't normally do. I took my temperature at about, uh, I guess an hour or so before we usually do the show. And it was like a hundred which is extraordinarily high for me because I actually, because I wanted to establish it. I think it's important for everyone to establish a baseline. Yeah. And because you're a reptile. Right. Um, you're used to it being, you know, a nice, nice, nice temperate 80 degrees. Well, what I, my regular temperature, most people, if you ask them what their temperature is, they would just say, oh, it's 98.6. 98.6 isn't what most people's temperature is. It's, it's simply the average if you take the average, the, if you were to, you know, pull a hundred people and tempt them when they're at rest in the middle of the day and take those a- and average all of that out, you'd get 98.6. Many people are warmer or colder. So it's important for everybody to establish a baseline. This takes two weeks. And each day you take a temperature, your temperature at uh, s- several times a day. I say three times a day, once in the morning, once in the midday, and once in the evening while you're at rest, write it down. And come up with the average of that over a period of one to two weeks, and then you'll know what your baseline. Mine is mine is ninety seven point nine, not ninety eight point six, and that's well within normal human range. But ninety eight point six is probably not what your temperature is. Mm-hmm. So you you get your ninety seven point nine. That's mine. So for me, 
a hundred degree temperature is actually like a degree higher than it would be for somebody whose temperature is 98.6 on average. Mm. So it was bad. It was bad times. So I went Mm. home and I just, uh, I just lay in bed in sort of a weird stupor. And, uh, and then at like nine or 10 at night, it kind of lifted and I started to feel better and I had an appetite and I ate. And the next day I was a lot better. Hmm. It's very weird. I don't know what it is. Hmm. So do you have any advice for me? Oh, I have tons of advice. Gosh, <laughs> where do I begin? Uh, I, uh, don't fevers usually, aren't they usually the result of some kind of an infection your body's trying to fight so off? So your body's fighting something. Right. What, what, is it, what does a fever mean? It, your like body it, is elevating its temperature to cook, to cook, to cook the bacteria. Because most of the bacteria does well at uh, average body temperature and not a couple, even just one to two degrees is enough to really start killing most bacteria. So your body, and that's why they say don't take Tylenol or Advil or, uh, or, or a fever reducer. Let ride out the fever. Ride it out. And they say that fevers, even high fevers, even fevers of like 104 or whatever. I mean, I'm not a doctor. No. But even even higher fevers are not life-threatening. I think they used to – I remember a, was a little house on the prairie where they had the, the one person in the, in the bathtub with the ice all around them. They're shivering. Like that's not usually necessary unless you have like incredibly high fevers like 107 or something. Like you wow, don't, your brain out. doesn't cook. I get it. I get it. Not a doctor. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? No, no. That's so interesting that your body would do that. Hmm. Yeah, because I mean, you know, your body does stuff. You know what? We shouldn't get into it. But uh, you know, your body does stuff because it's it's trying. It's it, it's got its own idea how to take. It's like the way a dog eats grass to throw up. Right. That's exactly what it's. You ever like. seen that, Dan? You ever seen a dog eat grass to throw up? In the Warner Brothers cartoons. Usually, it's it's Bugs Bunny is mixing up the potion and it does the different colors, and finally, you know, he has got it right when it does a little barber pole inside the inside the potion, and then they drink it. And then they breathe out the fire, and then they wind up in the field, sh- putting the grass into their into their mouth. That's right. They put the grass in the mouth, and you uh, you plant some uh, plant some flowers on somebody's head, and, and you massage them with your feet. <laughs> yeah. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> You've just summarized ninety percent of my childhood. <laughs> That's what I used to think about up there. Man, that was a tough ride because it used to be you had the Bugs Bunny uh, Roadrunner Hour, I think it was called, and at one point, <clears throat> I feel like at one point they were showing an hour and a half of like full length Warner brothers cartoons. And then they, at one point cut it down to an hour and then they started editing them. Mm. So we've talked about this, right? Mm-hmm. They started cutting, they, they stopped making sense. It was, I mean, how do you do that to a kid? That's horrible. Yeah. My daughter really likes those. Those are, those are good. Those are good funnies. Um, uh, one bit of administrivia. Did the, did the show bot, uh, take a nap? I, I don't, I'll look at it and see what I can do there. It should be fine. Is it not right. fine? There's no shows there. That's not a big deal. I just oh, we have that. a, we have a, no, the history ones, those are gone. All right. Because well, her, can we go do inside baseball? Heroku changed their pricing policy and this is on the free Heroku account. And so the historical stuff has to be purged now and we can clear the logs, but apparently they all had to be purged and now we're doing a new thing. All right. Well, but we it, did we'll a figure backup. it out. Yeah. I, I will capture, I will capture titles locally and uh, we can access that at the end of the show. I owe. Um, we got a lot of things to talk about. I'm glad you're feeling better. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so sick of feeling sick. Are you sick now? No, 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 I'm, no, I'm fine. But you know, I, you know, I don't want to become like how we seem. No, I know. You know? Wait, no. Well, you know, look with the germs. 
and with with the worrying, I, I, I it's it's a little bit of a bit, but I, I don't. The thing is, I actually am starting to become a little bit like that. Show titles, are, the titles are there now. Oh, awesome! It's all hey, good. check it out. It's working. Hi, um, <laughs> hi. <laughs> I will toot this on the tutor. I'm clicking. I copy. <laughs> what do you mean? It's a bit for you. It's a bit. <laughs> I don't think it's a bit for me. It's um, uh, it's accurate. I, I will I'll refer to the, the gentleman to my previous remarks, uh, which is that I don't think about it until I start thinking about it. And yeah. that's the trouble. It's like once I start thinking about it, I'm thinking about it. And mm. like I think the I think the field trip on on the four bus rides a couple weeks ago kind of kind of did me in a little bit. Oh, what ha- yes, right, where you were exposed to a lot of things, a lot of kids, a lot of driving. I, you around. know, this this could be total like coincidence or or voodoo, pardon the ping pong. But like I really feel like I and I, now I'm becoming this guy. I want to talk to the other parents at school. I'm like, you know, they really should wash their hands more. And they're like, yeah, I guess so. I'm like, no, but you know, they don't wash their hands as much. I, I still think that's like a huge thing. And I'm not even a compulsive hand washer. I wash my hands twice or three times a day. Okay. Um but I feel like when you're dealing with little kids, so like yesterday, for example, I really felt this. I had this real aviator moment mm. where like, it was so cool. We had our <laughs> the first grade picnic. So all four first grade classes go to the park and uh, all the parents, we all, we brought tons of food. It was really, really fun. It was really, really cool. And you know, I, you know, sometimes people kind of phone it in, but like a bunch of people showed up. It was really cool. Tons of stuff. And then at the end, we're ready to do cleanup a couple, three hours later. And there's still so much food left over. And one of the teachers says, oh, just take it to the, to the teacher's lounge. We'll just, you know, put it in a minivan and take it over to the school and, and the teachers can have the food. And, I, and I, I had this like tunnel vision moment where I just thought about all this food that had been sitting out unrefrigerated for two or three hours uh. while almost a hundred children touched it. Mm-hmm. Like walk by. You know, have a, have a baklava, don't have a baklava, touch the baklava, move the baklava. <laughs> massage the low main a little bit oh i want this dim sum not that one maybe i'll just touch the frosting on this cupcake you know times 88 right so <laughs> and i i caught myself and i was like well do you really think because uh, i didn't take our leftover food home <laughs> i was like i don't even want to touch the containers right oh, now yeah yeah but like is that bananas that's a little bananas right that's not totally bananas i don't know because i think that there's well, you're asking the wrong better, guy, obviously. Better safe than sorry, though, right? Yeah. I mean, you're really asking the wrong person here. But for me, I feel like, you know, better better safe than sorry. So, you know, if something, if you know something's been sitting out and touched a lot, maybe that you don't want to bring that home and reheat that. You know what I mean? Or not well, reheat that. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, is it, or how, we, are you going to be in a worse off situation if you bring it home? sits in the fridge day, reheat it and eat it. Are you worse off in that situation or are you going to be worse off oh, yeah. if you're like, you know what, let's just leave it here. We don't need that. Well, and it's got, it's several emerging warring factions in my head battling in their own little battle world at the same time. Because on the one hand, I, I, uh, I don't like wasting food. I don't like throwing food away. It's like n- nothing makes me feel more like a privileged white guy than throwing two pounds of food in the garbage at a park. It, it just, it's well, a terrible yeah. feeling. But on the other hand, it's like, you know, we made, my wife made two pasta salads and a fruit salad and, you know, and you try to provide utensils, but still. So I don't want to waste food. I don't, but on the other hand, it's like, did they wash their hands when they came to the park? You know what? Turns out they didn't. 
dirty little hands at the park all yeah. over the booger swings, like grabbing around and like, oh, maybe this piece of pizza will speak to me. Like, stop it. Like, quit doing that. <laughs> I want it to be more like an automat. You yeah. Know, like where there would be like a little window that would just spit out some food and we just burn the place down. Which brings me to the most important point of today, Dan. Dan, mm-hmm. Dan, you know, it's a, it's a big month coming up in June. June is a huge month. It's a huge month. A lot um, of stuff goes on. The film is going to be on Netflix starting June 1st. Yes, this is important. Mm-hmm. And we should do, I mean, I don't, I don't want to, you know, I don't yeah. want to uh, throw a net over top of you. No. But I would like, I would like to <laughs> do this movie with you. Others have tried. Yes. Mostly. Well, you uh, you cover, co- coverage for the, uh, for the other program. Yes. Yeah. Do a, you're saying, and now let's, let's step I don't want like, to put you on the spot and ro- rope you. Well, okay, so let's let's unpack all of that that nonsense we just had for thirty seconds. <laughs> okay, there's a film Dan and I like a lot by uh, Martin Scorsese. Martin Scorsese. I call him Marty. Marty calls him Marty. He used to love the cocaine. Did you know that? I no, I mean, but it makes sense. It f- yes. fits in. It's a lot of work to make a movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you need energy. You need energy. Somebody folks- tweeted us that it, I wasn't describing tiredness. I was describing weariness. Follow up for later. Actually. You got fedora So, <laughs> um, hi everybody. Dan and I really like a film called uh, The Aviator, uh, starring. Uh, what, what, what do you call the star of that film? You have a name for him too, right? Uh, I call him Leo. Leo, starring Leo Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. About uh, it's a biopic, as they say, on uh, Howard Hughes called The Aviator, and it is fortuitous that it is, I think, returning to Netflix. I think it's been on there before, but in any case, it's going to be on Netflix, which lots of people subscribe to, starting June first. So, if you've never seen The Aviator, now's a great chance, and you can watch it compulsively, which is really the best way to watch it. Uh, well, you know, unlike The Big Lebowski, which we did cover on the at the movies program, and we talked about this in depth here and and on the show itself. It's a movie that I feel like the first time you see it, you come away like, huh, maybe, uh, huh. And then the second time you say, okay, I'm getting something. And then the 50th time you're like, I'm starting to understand this. I feel like The Aviator, it's not quite as extreme as that. You can see that and take it in as a movie and you walk away from it saying, good movie. I enjoyed, I enjoyed this movie. Little soul parts, very pretty interesting. Well-made, big budget, etc. But if I think it will appeal to people who do struggle as I struggle with uh, the OCD thing. And I think that you come away viewing, regardless of, of which camp you fall into, you come away viewing Howard Hughes as a courageous person, uh, not just what he did in, in the business world, but what he was able to accomplish despite these challenges. So it's, it's a good story in that sense. But uh, if you do struggle with the OCD stuff, I think it's especially uh, important and meaningful mm-hmm. uh, for for you because I feel like he went in in everything that he did he went to extremes and I think in the same way his his OCD was very very extreme. It's only explored in the early part of his life. Really, it doesn't go into what happened to him and and what became of him in in the later years, which was even more extreme. It's sort of how he right. It got was certainly there. less less productive. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Unless you count urine as being productive. Right. But, but you know, and the other part of that, and, you know, I, I'm always hesitant to take any kind of reported pathology and try to talk about how that is a path to genius. But I can tell you, I mean, from anecdotes, firsthand anecdotes, or I guess technically secondhand anecdotes of people like Steve Jobs and especially George Lucas, uh, 
friends who've worked at companies that those guys run, there's a certain like pathology obsession that those guys had. You've certainly heard the things where like Steve Jobs takes the iPod that they bring in and he says, make it smaller. And they go, you know the story, you know the story. They, they, the team brings in an early iPod prototype and says, okay, here it is. And he goes, it's, it's still too big. And they're like, there's no way that this thing can get any smaller. And he grabs it and drops it into an aquarium mm-hmm. and bubbles come out. You can see those bubbles. That means there's still space in there. <laughs> Take that space out. Yeah. Like that's, that's the kind of thing that like a normal person would not do. Uh, or in the case of, uh, <laughs> I, I, I shouldn't say, but I've heard various stories about George Lucas is apparently extremely particular about his surroundings and wanting things a certain way. And anecdotes of him like walking by a room and seeing the chairs around a table in a way he didn't like you know, and what, where do you see that? And so again, I, I'm not trying to say that, you know, having these kinds of problems will make you a, a great entrepreneur and creative genius, but look at, look at Howard Hughes and his, like how, how this screw like fits on the yeah, plane. Yeah. There's something about the brain that if, if, if it has whatever this particular kind of problem is, this particular problem often leads to people pursuing success in a way that's, that's different whether it's Steve Jobs or whether it's Lucas or whether it's Howard Hughes. Uh, and I'm sure that there, you all often hear these stories that people who wind up being very successful, I would also think there's an equal or greater number of the people who have the same sort of idiosyncrasies or problems that are completely unsuccessful, that, they, that uh, things don't wind up working out for them. Right. You know, and I often oh, yeah, I yeah, think about got, that too. Channeled- yeah, if it got channeled in a in a different direction yeah. that they found uh, mentally or emotionally sticky, hmm? that 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 would take them off in this other direction. That could be like organizing shoes, right? Polaroids on them or something like that. But you know, in this case, like, or you know, and who knows? Again, this is he's he's making a case. He's making a creative, you know, object here. But you know, in the case of like all the different, uh, what do they call it, the yoke, like the steering wheel for the plane, all the different ones, you know. But you know, then think about uh, Apple's a great example of this. I bet you Johnny Ive has a pretty particular idea that, that he, he can probably, he's a very articulate guy and I'm sure he can articulate why this one is better than these four. But I bet sometimes there must be an element of like, I just need to see like 60 of these and then I need to see the revised version of 20 of these and then I need to see 10 of these. And like you keep winnowing down, forcing people to be impossibly creative and productive and eventually going like, okay, this one you know, this could always be better, but like, here's, this is, this is where we are for now. Yeah. And not settling. Whereas, you know, not settling. Yeah. And there's a certain, there's always a, there's a certain kind of a very different approach. And I, I'm only mentioning this because I've always been, I don't want to say interested, but curious about the kind of, uh, I don't know, not Warren, not Warren Buffett maybe, but maybe the Larry Ellison's of the world. Or, mm-hmm. you know, you see these people who make a, a fortune that they could live on 20 or 50 times over by the time they're in their say thirties mm-hmm. at least. And, but it doesn't stop them. They keep going. It, it is about the money, but it's only about the money in passing. It's about like constantly achieving this greater and greater level of success or innovation. And like that, that doesn't go away. And once you've had that success, if you have that sort of personality, I could very much see how that would drive you to want to make greater and greater things, take on greater and greater risks, and in the case of Howard Hughes, for, you know, as soon as somebody doubted that he was capable of something, he would just redouble his efforts. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's really good. And I, I don't know. It's, like, it's sort of like, I don't know, um, two very different movies. It reminds me a little bit of uh, Citizen Kane. Yes. It reminds me a little bit of, say, something like Polanski's Repulsion. Like there's this, there, 
there is the element of a biopic to it mm-hmm. that you get from something like Citizen Kane, a fictional biopic in that case. But you also, but the constant, not constant, but the periodic scenes of his escalating mm-hmm. obsessions and compulsions, you know, to, to a scene like so masterful, like when he's, when they're serving him the steak mm-hmm. with the peas, with the peas. And it's like, you just, you feel his pain so acutely in that even though it's something i don't have i could look at that and i could see his face and just know see the blood drain from his face as he has to like deal with this in front of other people right you know um, you know and there, there's later once he's sort of i don't want to give anything away but once he's sort of i don't want to say risen to power but when he's you know kind of more at the top of his of his game and his situation you see that the people around him just are sort of accepting these things and they understand that this is the way, and especially if you've read the books, this is the way that Howard works and this is what we need to do. This is the way he wants it. And it doesn't matter that I'm on a different floor than him in a different part of the building and have never once met him. I still have to wear these gloves when I walk through the halls. Like I just need to do that. And, and, and the people did that. And I don't know for sure if that kind of a culture, that supportive culture of of just this is the way it has to be would would work company wide the way right. that it it did work back then and I guess the forties, um, but you know I remember listening to you talk a minute before about about revising things down and uh, you know and I've kind of probably doing well let's see twenty of this and ten of this and three of this you know there's a a, a shot of that where Howard is sitting there with these different wheels uh, steering wheels for the uh, for the plane that he's working on. And it just shows him sort of like putting his hands in the grips and he's just keeps walking back and forth between the, them and has them set up on this display. And he's like, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right. Uh-huh. You know, and this is something that he, he only pilots eventually once, but you know, like every single detail he, he, it wasn't enough for him to just say, Oh, you know what? Um, this thing just needs to work like this. And then trusting it, he had to understand it, but he was also capable of understanding it. He was capable of understanding every single aspect of what went into building a, this plane, for example, right. uh, every single aspect of what went into making a movie. It, you know, and, and so whatever his areas of focus were, he was able to go down to that beginning level of what kind of screws are we using here all the way up to what kind of wheel are we going to use and how, what is the color of the thing It's every right. aspect of it. And mm. I find that, that when you look at, you know, movie directors is a really good example somebody like Stanley Kubrick, for Kubrick, example, perfect example. Yeah, yeah. Where it's every single aspect of this thing that he's working on has to be a certain way. You never get, you never find him saying, well, I, I don't care about this as long as it's done. Uh, but it's like, no, I, I have to focus. And that's why he, movies that he made took years and years and years. And that's why so many people who worked with him were like, he was the hardest person to work with in, in, in the whole world. And I didn't like him, but this movie is a masterpiece, you know? Um, he was, but he was, he was both demanding and inscrutable, mm. right? I mean, you hear stories of people who are more collaborative. I imagine working with somebody like Matthew Weiner is pretty amazing. He sounds like it's a very collaborative environment in that room. You know, he wants everybody to have better ideas than he does. But with somebody like Kubrick there, you know, there's those two documentaries about him. I think I watched them within like a day of each other. There's Stanley Kubrick's boxes. Mm-hmm. And then there's that other one, but those might be worth putting in show notes. But, um, but you know, they tell the story of like just what it took to get to the one doorway that he wanted to shoot for eyes wide shut. Right. And, how he didn't he like hire somebody to go through and photograph like separately photograph every doorway 
in a certain part of London and then create like a little diorama that would actually like illustrate them in the right order. I mean, kind of crazy stuff like that. Or, if, you know, down to the stories of um, uh, Wendy played by uh, Shelley Duvall. Shelley Duvall. Shelley Duvall just, she makes it sound like just a, such a horrible, just doing the scene over and over and over and over and him not giving any kind of notes on what to do differently. Mm-hmm. Just, just wearing, do it again. Do it again. Like, you know, over 20, 30 times, just wear <laughs> them down and then you end up using the first or second take. But yeah, I, I don't know. It's funny because it really does make me think about Apple. You know, in when you really think about what innovation means in, in like the true sense of the word, you know, as much as Apple, I always have to say, as much as Apple drives me bananas, it has been such an amazing story to watch unfold where, you know, even like I, I thought I had a pretty good on hand, handle on what Apple was at, at various points, especially in the last 10 or 15 years. But like, would you imagine that now today, Apple... Like if you'd guess where Apple would be 10 years ago, you'd say, well, they'll have probably cooler, smaller iPods. Uh, There will be more and more powerful Macs. Uh, All the kinds of things that you could guess with, you know, past being prologue. But now could you imagine a future where two things like that come to mind? First, Apple's ability to innovate with materials. You know, I mean, we've always thought, oh, you know, Apple makes these great looking uh, devices, but like where they're actually, they're doing stuff, uh, according to podcasts I've heard anyway, they're doing stuff with aluminum and now steel that other people just aren't capable of doing, especially at scale. And then you look at something like the genius of Tim Cook and like how, what, what they're able to accomplish at scale is, is pretty mind blowing where they became, you know, we looked at Google 10 years ago and, you know, even, even let's say eight years ago, you could look at Google and go, wow, Google's really made of scale. They have these services. They have these things they do. The secret sauce for money is obviously the advertising, but everybody who works at Google says the same thing. It's all about scale. They can spin anything up in hardly any time at oh, all yeah, and yeah. have it mostly not crash. Well, that's, that's so different from competing with Alta Vista. Like what a different like state of mind it would take to go like, here's what we started out with. Here's where we are now. And this is how we pivot to where today I don't know. I know. I just think that's really interesting. And that takes a certain kind of personality that goes way beyond. It takes that combination of somebody really um, design wise being very innovative, but also somebody like a Tim Cook who knows how to do the operations in a way that makes it like insanely uh, profitable. Right. And that's the key, I think, is the like the profitability thing and being able to not get caught up in those details and be able to pull back, you know, like pulling back. And it's when I, as I'm listening to you talk about this, I'm thinking about kind of myself and how I work. And there, I've realized that for me, there are things that I either com- completely don't care about or that I care about intensely. And when I say I don't care about something, I simply mean, you know, as long as it, it happens, it's fine. Uh, I don't really I'm not worried about the details of how it happens. And this could be at home. This could be at work. This could be in, in general. Just that thing happens. That's fine. I'm not, it's not interesting to me. Uh, and I, I don't mean that in like a bad way. It's just simply it's not interesting. Or I care so much about this thing that it's very hard for me to trust anyone else except myself to do it, even if I know that if I do it myself, it will take longer and uh, and and not be done as efficiently as if somebody else who might be or is likely better than me at doing it does it. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I've, you know, I, I've kind of struggled with. Um, but I don't, you know, I I still kind of do it that way. It's either it, either it, it's not like I know I'm the only one that will do it right. 
that's not true. I know it will be done right. I'm the only one that will do it the way I want it done. Right. And, well, and, you're, and you're a full you're a full stack obsessive. We're like if you if you had your <laughs> I like that term. If you had your druthers, like you would make sure every every I mean, like, is there any good reason that Johnny Ive is designing chairs for the new building. Right. Well, there, there's lots of good reasons for that if you're Johnny Ive and you want to keep Johnny Ive occupied. And again, I'm, I'm, where did I hear this? I'm cribbing this from someone else's show, maybe Gruber's show. Um, I, for, I, I apologize. It was a show I was listening to yesterday. But just like what, they, what they're doing with his new title and trying to keep him interested from a lifestyle standpoint. And like, you know, obviously he's a guy who does not want to sit around and fill out TPS cover sheets. You know, he wants to be making something increasingly more important and ubiquitous, timeless, and uh, sui generis. Like he, he right. wants to make a chair like nobody's ever made a chair before. <laughs> Where I'm just like, this this thing sitting on is fine. It's right, fine. But right. he wants to make a really, really cool chair. So that's that's where his that's where his uh, full stack obsession. The goes. question though is like, can he can he stop doing that? And why is is he doing that? Because like for me, the chair that I sit in or the minimum standard chair would be something that if I was building this building that was going to represent this company, which I happen to be like chief director of, uh, in Johnny's case, like I definitely would want to make sure that everybody who worked at this company was going to have a good chair. Maybe my chair might be different because I'm chief director of the thing, but I, I like the idea that everyone's going to have a really good chair and that the chairs are going to look cool but is this like worth my time as the guy who's building products for like millions and millions of people and there are problems with ios 8 which is a different show you know what i'm saying like i'd really right. rather him fix the ios 8 problems than pick out really good chairs when somebody else could maybe do that that's that's me and thinness where i you know i i on the one hand i feel like as i sit here right now i'm so okay with the thinness of most Apple devices, while whilst realizing that I will appreciate them getting thinner over time, but like my interest would be, you know, at this point would be battery life. Mm -hmm. You know, my my wife's new Dell gets like twelve hours <laughs> of uh, man. It's and the thing is, it's about the size of a MacBook Pro, maybe even a little smaller. It's it's not no, nah, it's it's similar in size. I certainly wouldn't want to have to use it, but boy, first of all, man, those Dells have come a long way. Yeah. Um. But instead, their direction is, if I may say, a little bit more Sony Vio, where we want to make with the with the um, MacBook One, we want to make this thing that's you know way streamlined. That's really is more like an art object. But you know, again, that's that's part of the that kind of immersive experience that somebody like Apple wants to give you. Or even you know, think about people again back, going back to things like airlines, where just think about the people who. Um, who who just sweat every detail of like you know what the pattern on the seats is going to look like what the you know what the cocktail napkins are going to look like somebody that wants to you see when that's done well and you see when it's done poorly you know you go to um you go to some hotels and they've got some kind of funky branding that they want to put on everything hilariously parodied recently mm -hmm. by Amy Schumer but um but then you go to other places where it's like you go into the hotel room and you're like, you can tell there's different business units to pick the soaps versus who picked the mattresses versus who picked the TV. Like, you know, you can tell that these are all completely unrelated business decisions that they want to make feel as though it's part of this cohesive experience. But really, they're just they're just cutting profits wherever they can. It is it isn't really that luxe, right? To get something that luxe, you're going to pay 10x and you're going to be really attended to 
But most people don't have, it's almost like wine where it's like, I don't have that much bioavailable classiness. Like I can't appreciate, I've had a hundred dollar bottle of wine. That was pretty great. I've had wines that were much more costly than that. Yeah. were good, but I sure wouldn't want to be spending that much, you know, you know, once a month or whatever. So I don't know. It varies. You know, we should, uh, you should tell me about something that you like. Oh yeah. I can tell you about, I would well, love to talk more about any of this, but, but I imagine we have sponsors this week. We do. We've got, uh, four lovely sponsors. The first, of, whoa, first of which is Wellfront. And I, I even have that. I have got the disclaimer, uh, queued up nice this time. So we're going to be on the ball with that. Wellfront Ooh, is a really cool company. They are the automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. And that's something that uh, you really can't understate the importance of i wish that i had even if it had been a little bit of somebody told me that if i had invested 500 dollars when i was like 21 i'd be like a multi-billionaire i'd be running netscape right now that's me and all the avx tie-ins <laughs> that's that's right well, if, I had taken, if i had taken half of that money <laughs> just, I, I could have literally just buried it in the yard and i'd have more money today i know that's a freebie they're gonna just have to run with that yeah <laughs> but it's true. I mean, think about think about that. And even now, Merlin, even for people like you, it's not too late to start investing. Even people who are essentially, you know, over the hill, it's right. still not too late. Uh, and for me, you know, you want to get started investing. And every time my wife will say to me, well, we got to talk to like an investment advisor. And I just I, I just like, oh, I don't want to do that, you know, because it's you know, it's going to be painful. You know that it's going to be a challenge to do it. And a lot of the time, the people who are good, and this is, um, again, I'm not a doctor, but people who are good, they don't want to talk to people who don't have like hundreds of thousands of dollars to invest in stuff. You're just not interesting to them if you're a regular human being. So enter Wealthfront. What they do, you go to the site, Wealthfront.com. You fill out, they have a little profile there. You fill that out and it it. Tells them everything that they need to know how to invest your money the right way. You can go aggressive, conservative, somewhere in between. And every single, like they do trades, they manage your portfolio based on that. And everything that they do, they're focused on being tax efficient. So they're maximizing your after-tax returns. They let you see all your accounts in one place. It's all commission-free. And they charge only 0.25% per year, which is less than a quarter of the cost of a traditional investment advisor. So you're going to save money doing that too. Uh, go check this out. It's at wealthfront.com slash five by five. And if you go there to that URL, wealthfront.com slash five by five, you will get $10,000 managed for free. So your first $10,000 is all uh, managed for free. So you don't even have to pay that 0.25%. So go check them out, wealthfront.com slash five by five. And I have recorded a special disclaimer uh, so that they don't, I guess they, we don't get sued or they don't get sued. And, and here it is. Wellfront Inc. is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are offered through Wellfront Brokerage Corporation, member FINRA and SIPC. This is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities. Investing in securities involves risks and there is a possibility of losing money. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please visit Wellfront.com to read the full disclosure. I feel like it could be faster. I think you've officially uh, jumped the time shark. I that's, feel like it could be faster. That's bananas, Dan. Oh my goodness. Do you know how I did that? Uh, yes. Okay. No, maybe. Uh, you recorded it and <laughs> then you did, uh, you sped it up. Yes, I sped it up in uh, in Logic. But you did the thing where it doesn't make it higher in pitch. Yeah, it's called Verispeed, and it, yeah. it keeps the pitch the same. All it, Logic just does this. It keeps the pitch the same, but speeds it up. So it's the Got same it. thing as like your podcast client is, is going to do if you listen at one and a half times speed or whatever. All right, nice. Same deal. Um, 
I just I, there's a big there's a big part of me that when I hear these stories about whether it's Kubrick or Steve Jobs or whoever, it it seems like like I don't get the impression, and I could be wrong, and and obviously people will tell me, but I don't get the impression like Steve Jobs was sweating the chairs in the building as much as he was. He was sweating the details of the, especially in his heyday, he was absolutely sweating the details of the products, physical, hands-on products, feel of the software, that kind of stuff. He was absolutely doing that. But I felt like there were certain things that he's like, it's a chair, it's fine, you know, and maybe I'm wrong about that, but I don't feel like every single thing in his entire environment had to be perfect and had to be a certain way that he could go and sit down and have a meeting in 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 someone else's office or in a cafeteria and like it didn't matter. Whereas I think Howard Hughes is right. kind of the flip side of that. Like it everything he wants, he wants this particular pair of shoes from this particular store. Better make it uh, pennies. Better make it pennies. Well, you know, there there again, who knows how many of these anecdotes are true, but you know, I think this might be in the Isaacson book, but like the story about him, um, you know, wanting to have a building where the windows didn't open because, you know, right. on the one hand you go, oh, it's great. You can open the window, but no, he wanted to be so that the environment would be controlled in a certain way. I bet it even came down to aesthetics where he wanted the building to always look the same from the outside mm-hmm. to not have even the hint of like a tenement with people having, you know, the ability to, you know what I mean? I, so, so who knows, but I'll, I would just bet you the, the, the middle ground on this, I think is that I bet it's very difficult to know, even if you're not like a pathologically uh, OCD um, diagnosed person, even if you're just somebody who sweats details, I bet the details that people sweat can differ a lot from person to person for, for a lot of interesting reasons. So, I mean, you may not be sweating the chairs. And again, again, think about not... I feel, I really feel like we're walking a line here. We're talking about somebody who had a serious mental problem, but you know, uh, part of what makes OCD so crazy is that we're so uh, chaotic is that not to be too gross about it, but Howard Hughes at the height of his problems had some pretty unusual habits Mm -hmm. in his desire to be clean and his desire to be hygienic. He did some extremely unhygienic, super gross things because you know, he he had to have the milk handed to him in a certain way, but he might not get his toenails cut for a year. Right. Or, you know, again, he might, might save his tinkle in a jar. and But then line up line up the tinkle, you know? So anyway, it's probably enough said about tinkle. Yeah, I but, mean, we can, we don't need to go into that. It's in the movie, but it's something that I think is fascinating when you, I agree. when you really, be, oh, now tell me about you. Do you have certain, like, do certain things need to be, like, oh, okay, I'll tell you something that is not, so much for me that is something that is it is so absurd but it's something that works for me and if it doesn't work there are consequences and i think i've talked about this on on this show i've definitely admitted it publicly before what happened but i have a certain thing that when i'm leaving in the morning to take my kid to school that i'll have my uh bag my laptop bag right it's next to his uh his book bag, which has like all his books and lunch and stuff in it. And we each take our bag and I'll go. And usually I'll go a little bit ahead of him and I'll go out through the door. And when I go out to the door, I hit the garage door to open it. And then I go to the car and I put the bag on the passenger side seat. And then I come back. And then by then he's putting his shoes on. He gets in the back seat. I make sure a seatbelt is on just because I want to make sure a seatbelt is on. I get in the car 
And even he can do it. I just want to double check it. You know what I'm saying? And then I get in the car and back out and drive away. If something is disrupted in that process, and this has happened twice, it's been disrupted twice. Each time I have backed into the closed garage door. Let me say oh, that again. I wow. have, I, I am an adult. You turn, you turn the car on with the, with, with the door closed. Here's what has disrupted it. One time, my three-year-old daughter opened the other garage door. So there was still light coming in and my brain thinking that the garage door was open and because I was disrupted in the thing, this is, this is my strange thing. And this, it, like certain things get into such a routine that if there's a variance in it, now the car was not really hurt. The garage door, I went outside and I pushed it and it pushed it back because I caught it instantly as soon as it made contact. So like there wasn't. You know what I'm saying? Like, I didn't have I to do, take the yeah. car to the shop or and anything. It's not like you're going 20 miles an hour. You're it's more It's more just the the humiliation of being so focused on this routine that if it varies, so I had to implement a separate check of now <laughs> I have to sit in the car and I do an extra thing where I look and I just sit and look at the rear view mirror to, the, to a two count just so I make sure that I do it. And I do that every time. Now that's part of the routine. Should have been part of the routine before. But like... It's weird how if there's the slightest little disruption in something that I like, I want to be on autopilot, is it, grab the bag, open the door, hit the garage button, passenger seat, you know, like that one part of it. If that doesn't get to, so another thing that happens, it seems like that's the critical moment, the egress from the house, because there was another thing where I had meant to take something with me, but, uh, oh, it was, a, I wanted to bring a sport coat. On my on on a trip that I took to Dallas, so I had the sport coat hanging by the door, so I would remember it because for a meeting I got to you know you know look nice, and mm-hmm. I, I had the thing by there, and then my little one uh, came up at at that moment as I was going through the door and wanted to give me another hug goodbye, so I gave her another hug goodbye, forgot the coat because I had stepped out of the routine of when I bring a coat I hang it here and then I take it and do. Right, I'm not angry at her for doing that because I wanted the extra hug right. Uh, but I wound up forgetting the thing. Not a big deal. Meeting went fine. But still, like, I don't know what it is where I, I kind of completely lose my focus if something like that is off. And there's really no other aspect of my life that's like that. It's just that one time period. Right. Is that crazy? No, no, I don't think so. Um, I've backed I into mean, my own garage. Yeah. It twice. Well, I mean, it's. I, I, well, I mean, just with my, my personality foibles, you know, it's something where like, if I'm not paying attention, I'll do something like if I'm groggy in the morning, I'll, I'll put my toothpaste on my kid's toothbrush and her <laughs> toothpaste on my toothbrush, right. which makes both of us incredibly unhappy. <laughs> yeah. Because I'm a Colgate man. And once you're a Colgate man, you never go back. Right. It's, it's real. It's kind of, it's, it's, it's just like a little, a couple ticks south of like using baking soda. It's, it's almost bitter, but minty. I do not want anything sweet on my toothbrush. And whereas she has crest like bubblegum kid toothpaste and we're both at the, as one, we're like, because I'm not thinking because they're both the same tube. I mean, that could just as easily have been like pro Rosso shaving cream. Like if I'm not thinking uh, that's how dumb I am. Cause you get on, you, again, you do get on autopilot. I don't think, I don't think it's weird or unusual. The degree of it, well, two things, the degree of it might be more than most people. And then your sort of self-talk, about it after might be a little bit more pointed than other people, you know, maybe cause you're like, oh, oh, stupid. Like, why, why didn't I do that? I have a system that should have worked. Right. That, that becomes part of it. I see it to an extent 
to answer your uh, original question, like I don't have many things like that. Um, but I do have, well, this is going to be my annual use of this word, workflows. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and by workflow, I just mean a series of tasks that you can efficiently a- accomplish in a certain order that you've done over and over and over because you know it is for now the fastest, most efficient, and sometimes importantly, the most creative way to do something. I think part of what makes, and I, I, I despise how overused that word is, but what makes a work, workflow great is there is the comfort, and that could be the workflow in your case of like leaving the house. Um, the problem is most people think of workflows as this thing you fiddle with for a couple of days and then try something out, and it's like, oh gosh, no, no, no. Like carpenters are not out there like trying out new new saws, you know, with every single project. Like you find the tools that work for you and then you use them until you have an improvement opportunity. But you never want to, I think, unless you are purely in a learning mode, you really want to, as much as possible, introduce things into your little world that are going to make you faster and more efficient. And again, I want to say more creative. And here's why I say that. Is this interesting? Can I talk about this? Yes. Okay. So... Like, for example, I, uh, I just put up an episode of Roderick on the line this morning and I, I don't, I'm not really into like the rituals of almost anything, but I have, there's a creative ritual that I really enjoy doing, which is, um, I don't love editing podcasts, so I don't edit them very much, but getting a podcast, you know, um, bounced down basically. Mm-hmm. And there's this series of like, if I were to write it down, you could say it's really a couple things. It's basically get it out of GarageBand, put in the metadata, and make a post on a site. But that vastly underestimates how many actual steps are involved. This is not this is not super interesting in terms of like me, but it's interesting in terms of all of us because you, if you start to realize how many things you do in the, roughly the same order, on the one hand, it does make you efficient and fast, but I think it does also make you creative because you already have a frame for that photo. And even something as dumb as show notes or, you know, the art you choose or whatever can be a creative thing. So like, you know, all the way from while I'm waiting for it to bounce out of GarageBand, I start going and I go look at all the title ideas that I had. We usually have a little thing at the bottom, you know, and then in the show notes, you have a title and then we've got the problem colon and whatever, like a joke thing. They're all right. totally unrelated. And then if people ever notice in the alt and title tags for the photo, there's usually another line from the show that I try to drop in. Not nothing, nothing big deal. You know, it's not hard, but I go and while that's in the background, uh, things are bouncing down. I start thinking about what title I want. I look at it. I see how it looks. Is it, is it a good length of a title that would fit into something like a tweet? Weird, weird, little dumb micro decisions. I think about like a photo I can go steal from the internet and I go and I, I make it black and white. I fix the levels of it. I add a little bende, like a little dot pitch look to it, you know, add another layer on top to make it a little bit washed out. Again, who cares? Tiny micro decisions. But at every step of this way, I'm, I'm moving and moving and moving in that direction. Once it bounces down, I go to iTunes. I put in all of the right metadata. I add the show art and the stuff like that. Back in NVAlt to make the show notes for the page, I go in, I add some certain CSS tags I always use. I make sure that the links work. The whole thing takes, excluding the longest part of it is the bouncing down from GarageBand. It really takes 15, yeah. 20 minutes. Yeah. But I find it very satisfying because at the end of that workflow, I get to go post a tweet that says, here's a new episode of the show. And that makes me feel good. But there's all these little micro decisions along the way that not, nobody's going to care. Not that many people. Right. I mean, it, all, it, picture. it sounds more like it's, it's for you it, more or at least as much as it is for the intended audience. Oh, absolutely. Well, especially in the early days when I would do dozens and dozens of links for every episode, I couldn't keep that up. But I guess what I'm trying to say is a couple of things. First of all, I think, 
there is the kind of like pseudo OCD comfort of knowing how things should go. You know how long something should take. Why is traffic annoying? Traffic, <laughs> traffic is annoying because you know long, you know how long it should take, and you know how long it could take. This should take twenty minutes, but you know if things went well, this could take. It's taken as little as eight minutes. I broke the law a little bit, but in that part of the workflow, I know that it can be as low as eight. If it's 45 minutes, you're mad because now that's thrown off everything else in the rest of the workflow. And, you know, sometimes when one thing goes wrong, another thing goes wrong. In the case of my workflow for just something as dumb as putting up a, a podcast, like if my internet connection is really slow, like that's really frustrating. If it's taking a while to, to if, it's, if it's uploading or incompletely uploading to my provider, like that feels frustrating for a minute because now I got to go figure that out. It throws me off a little bit, you know, but, but even like, I don't mind if I missed a closing a tag, that's easy enough. I go in and fix it. That's part of the process. But I think that, you know, when you have those things in your life, another example might be like getting ready in the morning. There could be something kind of satisfying about really nailing it with like, you got lunch packed, everything's done. The permission oh, yeah. are signed. Yep. There's like, there's like 40 things that we have to do every morning, each of which takes from like one second to five minutes, but they all have to line up. You know, it, it's like a crazy rally every morning. And there's something kind of satisfying about going, oh, you know what? I'm really glad I remembered to, to, to pick up cucumbers at the store. I'll slice those up and put those in the lunch, whatever. But I don't think you have to be an obsessive or compulsive person to find that satisfying. And conversely, I don't think it means that you're obsessive and compul com compulsive if you get frustrated by that. Right. And that's where the life hack stuff comes in because you say, well, wait a minute, let me look at what I'm trying to accomplish. Are there any steps that I can remove or move around or minimize, you know, uh, so many things I do with text expander. Like, and again, I'm not talking about making the iPhone here. I'm just talking about just doing dumb electronic stuff. Like once you realize those little things and you start introducing them, I think it can be really, really satisfying. Um, you know, and, but then once you get really, really good at it, you start to really notice where there's little kinks. Yes. And so you troubleshoot that. But I don't think that makes you a crazy person. You know, but then of course you can also then start sleepwalking a little bit and run into your door or, or in my case, you know, walk out without my glasses. Uh, and I'm like, ugh, there's like, there's like 10 things I have to have with me when I leave the house, mostly in my backpack, but like, and I'll forget my glasses of all things. I, I never forget my keys because I have a compulsion about checking my keys before I walk out the door. Is the door locked? But like, I'll be just far enough away from the house where I'm like, oh no, I got to be somewhere and I don't have my glasses and I can't see anything. And so you actually myself. make it, you make it out the door and, and it, moving somewhere without them on, you can see well enough to do that though. Well, you know, it's fun. Yeah. But you know, what's funny. This is really boring, but like, I, you know, like today I was like, oh, you know, I'm out of seltzer at the office. So I grab a six pack of seltzer out of the fridge and I throw it in my backpack. I'm like, oh, I'm so smart. I remembered that without a reminder. Usually I need a reminder. Do I need toilet paper or paper towels at the office? Things like that. I have the presence of mind. I actually have a repeating OmniFocus task which is to remind me to look at tasks related to the office. Like, how crazy is that? Because there'll be all these little onesie twosie singletons that I don't really need to do anything about, but I will forget about them unless I remember to check on them. And sometimes that'll be like a reminder as I'm leaving the house. Is there anything you need to take to work? Because something I need for work to take to work, I don't need to think about at work. I need to think about at home. Like returning a library book is not really a library project. It's a house project. Remember, so my task for that becomes when you're at home, remember to put this library book in your backpack. And then the second reminder says, when you leave the house, return this library book. And like, I don't know, like once you start realizing there's those little affordances out there for you, I think you get less stress and you can trust your intuition more because if there's anything that's outside of your usual habit or intuition, then you need, you need an infrastructure for that. So it's kind of back to what we talked about last week, I guess, but that reduces my stress a lot.
I think there's something to be okay. So something uh, that that we did, a separate topic we don't have to talk about. I used to keep uh, fish tanks. So there's a whole science to the cycling process of a fish tank. You can't just put water in, dechlorinate it, and throw fish in there. You've got to get this whole bacterial cycle called the nitrogen cycle because fish excrete ammonia, and then there's a bacteria that eats the uh, ammonia and converts it into nitrites. And then there's another bacteria that converts nitrites into nitrates, which in nature would sort of be processed out by plants and other things. Um, but that's what they call the, the nitrogen cycle. And this bacteria is necessary to keep the fish from basically dying in their own ammonia, if you will. And it's important to create this. You're basically creating this closed system in, in an aquarium. And I remember when I was a kid, we used to do something called, this is called cycling, this process. So you would just like throw some really hardy fish in there, like a few mollies or some zebra daniels or something. And you'd wait three weeks with like two or three fish swimming around in there. Some of them might die and it was really hard on the fish. Now they do this whole process of fishless cycling where you can get uh, ammonia uh, straight ammonia and add it and then you're testing for nitrites and there's all these different little you, or you've seen someone go in and test the water of a pool right where they're putting the little drops into the little test tubes and they're coming away from it saying oh th- there's too the ph is wrong or too much uh, chlorine or not enough or whatever there is this there is a science of understanding the water and the chemistry and all of this and it, and it does come down to you know, biology and chemistry of understanding this, but there's something incredibly satisfying about things being quantifiable and knowable and testable so that you can test. And I think that's what appeals to so many scientists, I'm guessing, Mm -hmm. especially something like chemists, for example, who can observe and test and repeat the test and come away with factual data that is is things are measurable and there are tools that you can use and systems around those tools that you can use to measure things Mm. and come away with something that is very, very specific and definitive and repeatable and is, is the true scientific method. And that's, that's something that I've always loved. And maybe it's because my grandfather was a metallurgist and he instilled that whole kind of thing. But if I had learned to truly appreciate it and if science and math hadn't, math especially hadn't been such a challenge for me when I was little, then I think I probably would be in a scientific field because I just there you're talking about getting uh, enjoyment or satisfaction or pleasure from I got these 10 things done and like they're done now. And man, I nailed that thing. There is that in just something as simple as like testing the water. Oh, okay. I have nitrates. I have this many nitrates. This is what's going on. I understand this. There is that kind of conceptual understanding that I find is so often, for me anyway, missing in something like software development, where, yes, you can write, you know, push and pops and look at stacks and different things like that. But when it comes to like building web applications or writing in JavaScript and jQuery, there, even though you can get things that work, sometimes they just don't work, you know, or sometimes they work here and not there or that worked before and now it's not working as well. That for me is, is, missing except in those sort of physical sciences and it's fascinating because like keeping a log of this of these different tests and all of this it's really going to be meaningless to me in a week once the whole thing is cycled 
it's still kind of fascinating. It's the same thing with like plotting the the track of a hurricane by hand. Like I used to do when I was a kid living in Florida, mm-hmm. something about like, this is where this system is. And this is the recorded wind strengths. And there's something super rain man esque and appealing to me about that. But I don't enjoy doing that for things like sports. And I know people way more guys who can like, Oh, you know, who was the quarterback in the losing team of the Super Bowl in 1989? Like, I know plenty of guys who know that. Right. I don't know that. I don't know, you know, what what uh, Jeter's hitting was a two year, three years ago. But there are people who've got that memorized. And it's there's something about the human mind and maybe it's a guy thing, but that, that there's something in, that is enjoying you enjoy the statistics and the tracking of the numbers and the, that kind of knowledge base, even if it's meaningless. There's well, something but interesting. But there's about something it. to everything that you're describing, which is, is that there's nothing that is ultimately unknowable about this stuff if you have the right method, process, and data. So, like, if you, I mean, there's something that's very appealing about that. It's almost like having a puzzle. Like, if, if somebody gives you a puzzle and it's a really difficult puzzle, you know, and all the pieces are there, it's extremely satisfying in some ways because you can feel things falling into place. Because there's a methodology. I start with the edges and all that kind of stuff, however you like to work. But I think it goes for, well, first of all, I want to say, I think this is a super interesting topic. I would like to keep talking about. Uh, Could you tell me about something you like? Because I, I, uh, would you mind? I'll tell you about something you like. Because I I got, I got, I got, I got, I got a lot more to say. Okay. And I think you do too. I do. Well, here's something uh, you'll like. And I like Mm. it. I like it a lot too. PDF Pen Scan Plus from our friends over at Smile. Uh, You know, you know who's in town? Uh, XX Smile, uh, Gene Gray McDonald. Was right oh. here for a, for a thing here in uh, in Austin. I, I I like that person a lot. She's she's great. Well, she used to be at Smile and uh, and Smile still going strong. This is what PDF Pen Scan Plus does. It gives you the scanning and OCR power that you need in a beautifully designed app that is always with you. It's on your iPhone or iPad. You basically you take it, you point your your camera in your phone at the document it could be like a receipt or a business card it will take the scan and it knows what you're scanning it it finds the edges it automatically crops it and gets it all ready to edit all with just a tap that's it so you can once you have it there you can do OCR text recognition you can create a searchable shareable PDF like right on your phone and it'll automatically upload it to iCloud oh you don't use iCloud Dropbox too. It's awesome. They've thought of everything. The best scanner, you know what they say, the best scanner is the one that's with you. And if you have PDF Pen Scan Plus, you can get that in the App Store today. It is amazing. And uh, it's brand new, March 18th, 2015. This is a free upgrade. So now you get touch-free scanning on your iPhone and iPad, detects the page edges, all this stuff, all built in. And they made a special URL for back-to-work listeners. It is smilesoftware.com slash b 2 W, smilesoftware.com slash B2W. This is an app you, you seem to enjoy. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those apps where there's certain kinds of apps that I feel like you have to sort of remember what it can do and find yourself using it more. I mean, anybody who's ever, like, for example, made something great out of their Evernote account learns that, like, it gets better the more you use it. Um, it's certainly, there's all kinds of apps on one of those where you, if you start just remembering what it could do for you, you'll find more uses for it and you'll increase your expertise at getting good at using it in the right context. So the main thing is get it and just start using it because there are, there are so many places that it's going to come in handy for you. It's, 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 it's a magical app. Go check it out. Smilesoftware.com slash B2W. Um, 
for uh, for the listeners out there, if you want to find show notes for this episode, you can go to 5by5.tv slash B2W slash 222. Two two two. Is yep. it two twenty two? Isn't two twenty two? That's a magic number. If that's the case, two twenty one, two twenty two, whatever it takes. Wow, you're right. Two twenty two. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Um, I I I think this is ending up being more interesting than I expected because I think we could we could even extend this a little bit further to to a couple of things. You talked about coding uh, or you know development and you know solving those kinds of problems and. For, as soon as you said that, that got me thinking about the hot topic of like coding styles and coding conventions where like you'll have these like, uh, I, I'm given to believe that different teams will have these different ideas uh, of like how we, from something as, as obviously something as important and huge as like what, um, what development tools we use, not development tools, but like, are we, are we in C? Are we in JavaScript? Like these are important decisions to make. And once you, once you decide on that, what kind of tools do we use for this? How do we format the code? You know, to an outsider, the way people format code must seem so strange. Like why, why would that matter? Yeah. But it really does matter. Oh, if it really, do, really matters. If that's what you do. I mean, for me, like I have certain ways I like to even just do, <clears throat> excuse me, something as simple as Markdown where like I can visually scan the page, you know, without using any extra tools and I can visually hone in on what it is I want to find. And, you know, it's, it sounds so weird and so, like, compulsive to, like, say, well, why would it matter? Like, there's, there's this bracket on a new line. Do you put your attributes on different lines? It's funny, like, the place I used to work, this used to seem so weird to me at first, but, um, and it, but like, so, and we're doing Cold Fusion, we're writing the HTML for that. The convention standard was, um, forgive me, I'm going to get the words wrong, but if you want to say, like, you got P, you got an opening P. And then you would put in a line break and a tab and all those attributes would be on separate lines. And at first I thought that was so weird because I'd only ever seen it completely in line. Well, the thing is it strips out all those returns, you know, when it's, you know, spit out. So it doesn't really matter. It's just for, but visually I I started to really appreciate that. It actually really, it makes a big long page, but like it actually makes it so much easier to like see all those elements that you find your errors much more quickly and stuff like that. But like the examples of stuff like that, I mean, isn't that a thing? Like, Sometimes it can be a little bit rocky for somebody to come into a different group where you're used to this particular way of form, even just even just formatting code, let alone like how you use libraries and stuff like that. But isn't that kind of a huge thing in a development team? Oh, it really is. I mean, if you get to, you know, when you're when it's just one, two people, it's not as big of a deal. But the ideal for a group of coders or people who are all contributing code to one big project, you absolutely want to have like a style guide for this is how we write code. And I've definitely had it where I've had to write like modules for even back at like PHP days of doing stuff with WordPress or expression engine or whatever. When I would contribute something, they would say like, this is the format that we use. You, you indent brackets this way. You do this thing this way. And I remember there was one person back in my, in my freelance days uh, I had hired a developer and she was doing CSS work. And I said, oh, you know, like the CSS that you're doing is great, but the way you're formatting it is really different from all of the other stuff that we've been using. W- you know, do you think you could could work kind of along the lines of what we already have, the other, you know, 500 lines of CSS that we have? And she said, no, I can't. I don't think I can. And I said, why? And she said, well, the way I do it is prettier. 
<laughs> and she had CS, like no, CSS is another example where you it's more conventional to put all the stuff on separate lines for separate example. lines but like she would indent and I still remember this she would indent the closing curly bracket by you know to keep it lined up with the code of the thing instead of having it back and I said well the reason that it's you know outdented to be parallel with the first is because like the opening bracket one and the closing bracket one there, there's a, a meaning there. Those are at the same level and the things they contain is indented. So if you have the closing bracket trailing, then it, it's not as easy to see where it ends. It's just sort of floating. And she, well, it, it looks better that way. <laughs> and But you know what? That's a perfectly valid answer. For her, it looked better. For me, it, there was a different kind of a meaning. It wasn't about it looks pretty. It was this, there's a meaning with the, the tabs and the indenting. Right. And, well, and is it, is it Python where that makes a big difference? Yes, at Python, it does make a big difference. So, but like, it, it, but in most languages, it doesn't. And her answer was just as valid as mine. And it really made me think about it. Like, huh, you know, she's, she's not wrong in that well, it, it, but... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a leap to an entirely different domain in just a second. But as a bridge to that, I, I mean, I, I see the value in everybody doing it the same way because it starts introducing a certain kind of, um, what's the word? Not work style, ethic, but it introduces this idea that we work clean here. Like we always, and, and this is, I'm going to get in a second, I want to get into something in, in preparing food called mise en place, but it's oh, kind yeah. of a version of mise en place for, for coding where you're saying like, well, you know, we don't, you know, the thing is this code is going to work the same either way, but it matters what kind of environment we work in and how we do this. So on a superficial level, yeah, we'll just, you know, just do that because that's how we do it. And luckily, you know, there are tools that can reformat code, but, but but getting into that state of mind of thinking about how you work and how you organize has ramifications because now you start thinking more, you start thinking more cleanly, you know, in, in addition to having fewer weird errors because you're just doing all kinds of, you're, you're doing this, you know, we well, should we do this with this master style sheet over there? Should we do this by putting it in the head? Should we do this by using an ID tag? Should we be doing this onesie twosie and with, with paragraphs and A's and, and images and stuff like that? Well, no, those there's conventions about how we do that. And that's super important. Because when we make this change in the master style sheet that gets included on every page, we need to know how that cascade's going to work. There are consequences to what seem like pretty simple decisions. If you end up having a lot of specificity in this override, at this, if you make it like B, you know, style equals, you know, blue or font, font color blue or whatever, color equal color color blue, whatever mm-hmm. that would be. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. If you have too much specificity in what seems like a really trivial change, that's going to botch these really important things we rely on for this all to look a certain way. You can tell I'm out of practice on doing this stuff, but it's not trivial to expect people to do that because then the next step from that, you start thinking more cleanly about how you do the coding in general. So when you have a meeting and you're going to talk about how we solve this particular problem, what parts of the code need to change, you don't have to worry about that you can find stuff. You don't have to worry about whether there's, you know, replication. If you keep thinking about working cleanly and optimally, that's I, I I'm repeating myself, but I think that has an impact on on how you think and how you work because you're you're not just thinking of this cowboy thing where I'm going to reload it till the page works. There's something more significant going on. Whereas part of a team, this is how we work. And and after I hear your comments, I want to talk about how that works in a kitchen because I think it's super interesting. But what do you think of that? Does that does that comport with your experience in development? No, it, teams? It, it really does. And having worked on teams, especially like remote teams, you know, the idea, the goal is to have the the code looked like it could have been written by anyone on the team. And in, and in fact, to maybe if you were just reading it to not know who wrote that, me 
or the other person on the team or one of the other five people on the team. You want it to just be seamless. And if you it's it can be a little restrictive, but it also can be freeing. It's a constraint that can that can be freeing in in the sense of, you know, saying, well, again, there is like a, a way we do this. There's like a measurable way to to do this. And it's it can also be refreshing when you go back to your code in a year. And that was always the funny thing. I remember I got to a point when I was, when <laughs> that's, I, that's when you really kick yourself. You're like, yeah. oh man, what was I, what, what was I was thinking I here? Thinking. How, how did I do that? How or why did why? I do this? Why? Because if you know if it's weird, you know if it's weird and not obvious why you did it that way, There's it will almost certainly break something because that was a hack. Yeah, I remember the first time that I went and looked at code that was about a year old that I didn't feel that way. And I, I don't know if that indicated that I'd gotten good or that I had hit the limit of my programming ability and, and that would which would be bad but it maybe both uh, but I remember feeling that way it was probably at, it was probably about four years ago <laughs> and it was the first time like in my late 30s where I looked at something I'd written and I said oh yeah you know that's pretty good that's pretty <laughs> good I probably wouldn't change that uh, it was it was a breakthrough for me because every single time up until that point, I had looked at code and I said, that sucks. I can't believe I did it that way. And then again, you talk about the perfection of stuff. Like if you're working on a new feature and you learn something new, a new paradigm or new methodology or something, and you're like, I can't go back and fix this old thing. I've got to work on this new thing. Uh, the old thing isn't broken. It works. And I remember reading a really good article about... You know, code that works is it's okay if if it's not the most optimized way to do it, if it's not the most efficient way to do it. If it works correctly, if it's working, then don't go and fix it. You know, it's not broken if if there are no there's no downside to it. You know, we don't have to worry so much, especially if we're not building mobile stuff about like it could this thing be 0.002% more efficient if I had done it this way instead of that way. We're not really limited by that constraint as much as we used to be when we were compiling down to machine language and C, you know, like hmm. manually. Um, that, that, that making something super efficient is something you can go back and do later. But for a lot of people, that's not okay, you know, and that's there's that perfectionist type thing again. There's that demanding of excellence is that every line of code I write must be perfect. If there's a better right. way to do it, I'll do it. Right. That may not be the right time for that, but... You know, thinking even so, think about that same team and how you use the office kitchen. You know, there's there's nothing to and this goes straight back to your garage door hitting. Like, there's nothing more frustrating. Let's say you've gone in and maybe you've, you've heated up your lunch, you got a beverage, you've uh, you got a magazine thing you want to read, and you go and there's no forks because the forks aren't in the right place, right? The fork or they're in the dishwasher or whatever. There's something very frustrating about that because those kinds of conventions are what let us all not even work remotely, like work together is like, I don't think that's that much different from, you know, putting office supplies in the, in the restroom or something. Like there, there is something to be said for like, well, if somebody ever has to come fix this bug, they should know what's important about it. In the same way that you would make sure that anybody who's going to come and like do upkeep on, uh, you know, the people who paint the Golden Gate Bridge, like probably have a pretty good idea which paint to get. And they, <laughs> they know where to order it. They know how much to get. But if people are getting, you know, different kinds of cable and different kinds of screws and putting them in different places because that's their preference, that's disruptive to the, to the whole team. Uh, can I introduce this? Uh, oh, did you want to tell me about uh, something else you like? Sure, I can tell you about Casper. Woo! 
Casper is an online retailer of premium I spend, mattresses. I spend about a third of my day with a Casper mattress. You do. You have. Do you still have them stacked? The stacked. I'm thinking about getting a third. <laughs> really? really? <laughs> I'm trying to jack it up. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, one of the things that Casper did, they wanted us to experience the mattress. So we we got a mattress. You have a, I mean, you and I don't share the same mattress. Not but, at the same time. I mean, not. It's a turn. It take turns. Uh, but we have a mattress. You have a mattress. And I was very, you know, to be honest, I was a little skeptical because I thought, well, you know, like it's a mattress, but how do they ship it to you? And what if I don't like it? Well, they've thought of all of that. The way that they these mattresses are what are called hybrids, human-alien hybrid mattresses. Mm. So they, uh, they use uh, latex foam and memory foam because I've slept on a memory foam mattress. One time we went and we had a vacation house by the beach and uh, I didn't, I would never in a million years have thought it was going to be one of these memory foam mattresses. Worst sleep I ever had in my, my whole life. I, I tossed and turned on it, couldn't get comfortable, and it wound up hurting my back. Took two weeks to get straightened out again. So when I heard that they had the memory foam in there, I was a, a little nervous about it. They have done it the right way. The memory foam is just there to make the top part of it comfortable. It's not just that solid, weird block. This feels in every single way and really is what we think of as a comfortable mattress. It's not some weird technology stuff that you that you have to adapt yourself to. It adapts to you. Amazing mattress. Couldn't be happier with it. And uh, and their pricing, they completely cut out the middleman so that you order from them. It comes in a box. You open the box. It unfurls like magic and breathes. It like breathes itself to full size. Mm. And then... Uh, <laughs> and then... You land now. If you don't like the mattress, you've got a hundred days that you can use this thing before you have to send it back. A hundred days, and they make it painless to do all of that stuff. Refunds everything else. Risk-free experience. Here's the basic pricing on this. Uh, they're going to cost between five hundred bucks for a twin, seven fifty for a full, eight fifty for a queen, nine fifty for a king. You need to try one of these things out. They are truly amazing, Merlin. You you you're sleeping on one of these all day. Oh yeah, I'm a fan, man. Um, and just the whole experience of it is so great, especially given what a pain it is to deal with buying a mattress in general. There's something really just, it's, uh, I mean, I guess you have to take it on the strength from us that they are actually really nice, but you know, go and shop around. And I, I think the, I can tell you that the experience of sleeping on it is great, but the experience of, of owning it is one of the best parts. You know, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's a really nice experience, uh, to, to, purchase and receive this thing and uh and you're gonna get many great nights sleep out of it for sure so you go to casper.com slash back to work spelled out and you will get 50 bucks off any mattress that you purchase that is the uh the code you use is back to work spelled out and uh, of course they have terms and conditions and things but generally speaking you're gonna go there you're gonna get 50 bucks and uh we're gonna save you some money so thanks very much to casper for supporting five by five and back to work Woo! Mattresses. Yeah. They are really great. They are really yeah, I great. I love to sleep. I love it so much. You know, um, sleep. I want to I want to address that before we close the show uh, whenever that is. Sleep. Yeah, uh. I can I can roll for another. I got a def, I got a hard out in 45. No, we can we can wrap it up in there. No, we got so much to talk about still. Um this is a term that I first learned about watching Top Chef. 
So Top Chef, you have the, uh, you got the quick fire challenge and the elimination challenge. Uh, the elimination challenge is the big one. That's most of the episode where, you know, the person who loses gets thrown off the show. The quick fire challenge is usually something, uh, it's usually like a very short, like maybe a half hour challenge that involves cooking something quickly. But one of my favorites that they do uh, each season is the mise en place challenge. So right. This is where I first learned this word. And so basically it's, it's each team of people has to prepare some difficult foods for preparation. They don't have to cook it. They have to prepare it. So you've got to do something like one of the classics is you have to make a tomahawk chop out of like a full like rib. You have to like clean it and you know, or you have to like French uh, a, a lamb. Right. <laughs> That's a normal, that's a normal thing. It's called lamb Frenching. <laughs> Or you have to, you have to like not only open the oysters, you have to clean the oysters and make them pretty. But anyway, that's the first time I heard this word. It's a really fun challenge because you really see who's been doing this for a while and who's like really struggling with like, you know, how to clean a kiwi or whatever. But I first learned that phrase and, and then, uh, so mise en place. Uh, and at this point, I'm just going to read a little bit from the internet, but, uh, so I was aware of that term. And then there was a piece on NPR last year, uh, that really expanded this idea for me. Uh, for a more ordered life, organized like a chef. It's in show notes. And it's basically about the culture of mise en place. Mise en place on the face of it, at least according to Wikipedia, which is never wrong, mise en place is a French phrase, which which means put in place, as in set up. It is used in professional kitchens to refer to organizing and arranging the ingredients, cuts of meat, relishes, sauces, etc., cetera, uh, that a cook will require for the kitchen items that are expected. Okay, uh, that you're going to have to use. So, okay, on the face of it, that means preparation. But there's so much more art and philosophy and lifestyle to mise en place. It's this whole idea of getting everything ready, just the things that you're going to need to do what you need to do. It requires really thinking through everything you're doing. It requires having this very organized and super clean way of how you work where everything is in a certain place. And are you familiar with this? Have you, you've heard this concept. Before, uh, right? Only only peripherally. Um, I think most people's introduction to mise en place was accidental and it's through a 2000 movie called Ratatouille. Right. So it's your, it's your setup. So if you remember the scene where Colette is very reluctantly having to train Linguini and Linguini is just a mess. He's running around all over the place. Here's a quote from Colette. Ugh, your sleeves look like you threw up on them. Keep your hands and arms in close to the body like this. See, always return to this position. Cooks move fast, sharp utensils, hot metal. Keep your arms in. You will minimize cuts and burns and keep your sleeves clean. Mark of a chef, messy apron, clean sleeves. That's, that's mise en place is this idea, and I don't mean to beat it to death or try to drive that word into the ground, but there's something that we can all really learn from this, mm. which is the idea that like just shucking some food together is can be really satisfying and yummy, but like thinking of this larger process of how you prepare and working cleanly, cleaning as you go, right? Having a whole process for how you do it can be can make the whole thing incredibly satisfying. And it's why some cooks really treat, they get tattoos about mise en place because it becomes so important to how they work together as a team. Everybody knows how the station gets set up. Everybody knows where the knives go. Is there a question about whether this knife should be as sharp as possible all the time? There is no question about that. Right. That is part of the process. It's not just pushing out orders. It's doing everything to prepare us for the madness of what's going to happen in this kitchen. And the only way that we can do that is to go through this seemingly anal retentive process of preparing everything. So anyway, I would encourage you to watch Ratatouille. I would encourage you to listen uh, to that NPR piece. What I want to get at here though, is that I think when you're operating at a certain level, these things become very important. So on the one hand, on the one hand, it becomes very important that you know your kitchen or your office or your coding environment is all set up to work a certain way. Don't move John Syracuse's windows, like whatever you do. Right. Because once you're operating at a certain level, 
every little bit that is disruptive to that process hurts your productivity and hurts your creativity. Because now, on the one hand, you're slowing down. On the other hand, it's a little messier than you would like. So it's making, and it's making you less confident. It's making you feel less like this is the process that we use. So having an incredibly high standard, even for something as silly as like where you put the chervil is going to have a really big impact on how everybody works together. So um, I just wanted to toss out that idea because it's very much worth exploring and thinking about in how you work. Even if you have a messy desk or whatever, uh, having an approach to how you work by yourself and with other people that takes into account how to work optimally is not is not a donkey drill. It's not stupid. It's not silly. You have to go then and make all the food and produce it. But like to start thinking about that process and, and what you do before you even begin working, like to me, that's one of the marks of a professional is you have a certain environment set up a certain way. You got a bash profile that nobody better mess with, right? If you've got a way, if you, this is my knife, do not borrow it. It goes here. Like that's not weird. That's just being a pro. And like, I don't know, I just, I'm very interested in that idea. Mise en place. Well, I think it's a great idea. And I think it does extend to different uh, industries or different disciplines or whatever it is, you know, like you, you see people who are um, musicians who have, especially like with like a drum kit, you know, like you want things set up a certain way. And yeah, you could sit down at anyone's drum kit and you could just play. But once you, you know, once you establish your kind of style of music and the way that you have it, like you want to sit down and you just, you want the hi-hat to be wherever, you know, you want everything to be set up a certain way and you want a certain kind of sticks and you want a certain kind of uh, drums, you know, tuned and set up a certain, like it's a, it's a thing that you want, you know, like for me in this room, when I do this show, it's different from the way I do a, another show. Like I'm in a different room when we do this show than I am for right. most of my other shows and I have the mic a certain way. And like, again, like with me, it's like, no one else will use this microphone because I have it set up exactly a certain way. And I have the screen at a certain angle and I have my computer at this other place. And like, it's, yeah, of course I could do this show in a hotel room, sitting at a desk with a little travel mic and it hopefully would be just as good. But I feel like I get into a certain zone and a certain mindset and a certain thought process when it is a certain way. And if you mm -hmm. find something that works for you, and you find, you know, that's why you've got athletes who are like, yeah, I have to wear my game socks, you know, because it becomes almost a superstition for them. And while that time I didn't wear my game socks, I struck out on the plate three times in a row. But now I've got, you know, I'm wearing them today, so I'll be fine. I, I think that's going too far. Some, someday they'll make a batting glove that doesn't need to be uh, readjusted after every pitch. That's right. But for, you know, in the meantime, it does. And that makes them feel better. And for me, like... This microphone on this certain boom, that's back to work for me, you know, and the lighting is a certain way in this room. And there have been plenty of times when it wasn't, but like eliminating those, those variables makes it so that you can focus on the thing. So you have all of the, you know, the onions cut up a certain way in this little thing and the, and the, you know, whatever, all of your different ingredients like you're talking about are, are laid out and your knife and the thing goes here and you've got your towel like this. Now you don't have to think about that stuff anymore. And, and, you know, yeah, totally 100%. And it extends into so many different kinds of disciplines. Well, first, one thing I want to clarify is like, I, I think there's a lizard brain component to this where you have to be careful. I'm not saying to go out and get a lot of arbitrary preferences to seem interesting. What, what I am saying is that in the case of you, for example, being able to perform and do a podcast in a hotel room with minimal, you know, like the thing is the way that you're able to do that is having done it over and over and over in, in different kinds of environments. And 
you know, so that's why, again, I always want to talk about my, my sister-in-law who's so capable of taking whatever ingredients are available and making something amazing out of it. And she always changes it up a little bit. Even if it's leftover, she makes it into something interesting. And that's, that, that is purely an expertise problem. Also, I will note that her kitchen is impeccable in terms of organization. Uh, we were there over the weekend. And like the spices are all in a certain order in the drawer. Like it's, it's not the, where I would put them, but I'm not the one who runs the kitchen. It's just that that means that no matter how important or silly or insignificant or last minute something is, she always knows how to operate because she's done it over and over and increasingly, increasingly improving her process as she goes. So let's look at some other things. Um, I mean, do you remember, you know, before Evil Knievel would, uh, would jump over, uh, usually unsuccessfully jump over a bunch of cars or buses, he'd always walk up the ramp. Yeah. And he'd, he'd look and he'd walk back down and he'd look at, he's looking at the, you know, at the, thinking about the temperature. He's thinking about the humidity probably. I bet he's looking for, you know, little spots where maybe the ramp's not, he has to, he walks that every time because that's part of his process. The thing he used to say about Tiger Woods, does he practice less because he's the greatest golfer in the world? No, he practices more because that's how you stay great is to keep doing it. So there's an element, there is an element to this that seems like OCD, but I think it's not. I think it comes out of expertise. It comes out of experience. It comes out of repetition. It comes out of learning. It comes out of saying, hey, is there a better way I can do this? I will try this thing, but I'm not going to upset my whole system or make a messy kitchen just to, just to, you know, experiment on an important dinner night. Like I have a way that I do this and like, you should not be ashamed of having that. But it also means learning from other people. Um, it also means learning, like, is there a better way I could do that? But I think that could be good for anybody in any walk of life. Like if you're, you know, selling insurance, there's probably a way that you can improve that process by uh, being more mise en place. I will stop saying that word now. Well, I really like this. And it reminded me of something when you talk about Tiger Woods, you talk about athletes, you know, I've played golf uh, a number of times, never well. But it's something that I enjoy and I enjoy it despite the fact that I'm very bad at it. And um, I remember it back in, in my old days when I used to be very, a ner- very much a nervous flyer. Um, I, the, uh, one of my wonderful uh, psychiatrists gave me a, a, a prescription for Xanax and it was very, very low dosage. Uh, but I, I remember she said, well, you know, just take, take this. When you're going to fly. And I said, well, I start getting nervous about flying like two weeks in advance. She's like, well, you know, start taking it a week in advance. It's I'm like, I, I don't want to be hooked on it. And she's like, you're not going to at this dose, taking it for a week ahead. You're not going to get hooked on it. It's fine. It was like really, really low dose. So I remember it was like a week before a trip. And this is, we're talking more than 10 years ago, but it was a week before the trip. And I was starting already to, you know, get the, the, the dread feelings and feel the fear and everything else. And, um, and so I started taking this and I remember one of the days ahead of time, uh, I said, well, you know, I'm just going to go out and hit, hit some balls. And I was hitting like I had never hit before. And it's not just that I wasn't stressed out. I was just sort of like, I huh. didn't, I didn't care quite so much. <laughs> and, and I got into this cause that's what Xanax will, will do for you. will make you not like, you're still, it's not like you don't care about anything, but you just don't care it, quite it, as it much. Takes, it takes the edge off. Very much. And, and I was hitting, and I was like, man, I am hitting great. And I was with my father-in-law, and he's like, you're hitting great, <laughs> you know? And I was like, yeah, I am. And I, there was this sort of just relaxed feeling about it, and the follow-through was good, and it was, it was a good thing. And I remember, obviously, making that connection of why, 
because it was the only real thing that that was different about it. And I read about this and I, I actually read that they had done studies. I guess they had hooked up athletes to uh, to their to some kind of, you know, I don't know if it was like an, not an EKG, but it was reading their stress levels in some way or another when they were out there. And they determined that athletes typically will be very focused and stressed out up until the very last seconds before they're performing whatever the thing is that they are there to do, whether they're hitting a ball or shooting, uh, you know, shooting a bow and arrow at a target or they're a marksman of some kind or whatever it was. But like there, so let's say you're, um, you know, let's say you're going up to tee up. You're going to be incredibly nervous and stressed up until you start to take your swing. And then very, I'm talking about super high-end athletes, very relaxed, Mm-hmm. And just now, Cinderella boy. Yes, they're doing his eyes. I guess that's right. And they're just doing this thing very slowly and easily. And it's not that they don't care, but the, but but that it becomes very much automatic in that way. And that's mm-hmm. that's what having these kinds of systems that you know you whether it's you're sitting down at your desk and it's organized just the way you like, even if that organized actually means cluttered with lots of papers on it. Like there's something you often look at workplaces or workspaces of people who, you know, Ray, and we've talked about the yeah, Ray like Bradbury trade, thing. Trades people. Yeah. You know? Where like some people have all the tools on the thing with the outlines. Right. And other people have <laughs> this total chaos, but they can find everything. Yeah. And there's something really interesting about that. I've always been fascinated totally. at looking at people's workplaces and seeing what it is that that they have. And I often point to Ray Bradbury. There used to be this program, I guess it was in the 80s on TV, that was like Ray Bradbury's stories come to life. And it showed him, I guess he was going into that famous building with this, the, it, I think as they've used it in a couple movies and I always forget which one it is, but he goes into the building and he would walk to his office and his office had all kinds of like, junk and weird things and dinosaurs and skulls and books and maps and you know all this stuff out everywhere and on the one hand I was like how does anyone get anything done with all that but that was like his like inspiration it was like his cocoon fortress of solitude kind of thing and I, that's mm-hmm. always fascinating to me oh I, I I completely agree I also think it's interesting when you talk about an athlete who could feel really nervous before they walk up and uh, do their thing. And then of course they got their rituals. I think, I think the obvious similar example in some ways is performers who have stage fright and, you know, there's a lot of mythology around, you know, the performance anxiety and stage fright. But I think one of those myths is that, that somehow people who are good at what they do and do it a lot, don't get stage fright or don't get nervous or don't, there are some people who just throw up before they perform every single time. <laughs> right. And that's just part of what they do. <laughs> right. But I mean, as do you I, when you when you get up to give a talk or or a, a speech or when you're up doing you know like the stuff you do with uh, with uh, like when you're on stage? Scott. Yeah, I mean Scott and you up there together. Are you nervous? Are you worried? Oh, I'm. Um, it's a great question, and I am always looking for a funny place where, like, for example, like I don't get. I am one of the like point zero zero one part of the population that doesn't really get stage fright because right. I really enjoy performing. For me, it's an oasis from the rest of my life. I really enjoy I enjoy doing podcasts. I enjoy doing live things. I thrive in that environment. Yeah. It's exactly the kind of challenge that I want. With that said, I know that a little bit of, I don't, I don't know what you want to call it, a little bit of anxiety just because you're excited because there's, there's good anxieties. Good, there's anxieties where you're like, oh my gosh, 
I hope something great happens. I know something great could happen. And you're like, wonder, I wonder what'll happen. Like, that's an exciting feeling. It could be a little bit of nervousness of like, oh gosh, I hope I don't pee myself. It could be a little bit of reluctance where you're like, I don't know, I'm not sure if I'm really prepared. It could be a little bit of fear of like, wow, this audience really might not like this talk. I have to say that I, I on the one hand, obviously I do not want to be sitting in a ball under a blanket crying with fear. But at the same time, I don't want to feel, I don't want to feel nothing when I go out. I think it's a really nice feeling to have a little bit of butterflies in your stomach. And I, I not only am used to it, I, I like it. I look forward to it because that means that I'm there. I'm like in the moment. If I felt nothing when I walked out, well, that's a pretty good, you know, I, I want to be relaxed, but I want to be relaxed once I'm on stage. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I don't think it's unusual at all for people to have a whole range of different feelings when it's time to perform, whether that's in athletics or, or speaking or whatever it is, performing in any way. I think it's a good thing. And like the, the funny part is though, you start to realize that's part of the process. You don't want to be sick. Like you don't want to get, give yourself an ulcer, but like you also have to understand like, ah, I know this feeling of butterflies in the stomach. It's really different from the, I hope I don't get picked for jury duty feeling. I've learned to differentiate those and put them in the right context and leverage it and be able to say, well, maybe that little bit of nervousness, nervousness is going to keep me alert and make me look for opportunities um, to make this really good in ways I wouldn't have if I were just feeling bored. You know, I, I remember reading uh, and I was trying to Google it while we were talking, but it says uh, yeah, Johnny Carson got nervous every every night. every night, and he would smoke a cigarette behind the curtain every night. Right, and he would get sick to his stomach, and he would get nervous. And a lot of the little mannerisms and things that he that he did, apparently, he did them out of nerves. And I think there was there was an Esquire article that I found that was talking about. Uh, you know, these different mannerisms and, and things that he did. And they had Rich Little uh, listing 23 examples of his physical <laughs> things that he did. His little ticks. His little ticks and stuff were, were, were out of nervousness. And you think, like, how could a guy who's been doing shows for, for decades be nervous up there? But he was always very, very nervous. And it's it's funny because for me, I don't, I don't speak anywhere near as much as, as you do. But for me... You know, I'm never afraid to get up in front of people and talk. I'm never afraid of an audience. I'm never afraid of anything like that. But I know that like when you when you get up and you're giving a talk, like there's that nervousness right before you're going to go and do it to the point where you're like, I'm just going to run the hell out. Like I'm this close to just turning around and leaving out the back door. But the minute that you're up there, like that's completely gone. And it's you. It, you get in a zone, and it's natural, and it's fun, and you realize, well, I'm mm -hmm. just, I'm up here, I'm having a, a great time, and thank God I prepared as much as I did. But you know, like that's the feeling that that is the reward for that nervousness, and it's, um, you know, I think for a lot of people, they 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 never get that reward. I think that just it's just yeah. tough for them to be up there. Oh, I, I I totally agree. I mean, it's I don't I I would love to see the actual citation on this, but people say that Americans, most Americans, number, number, number two fear in life is death. And their number one fear in life is public speaking. Um, I, I've heard that cited many times and I don't have a, a statistic on that, but uh, I, frankly, I believe it. I know people who like, they will do anything in the, I know people who like would love to just never have to talk in a meeting again. Oh yeah. Like, just the whole idea of that is, is so scary to them. 
Yeah, right. Like being being up in front. I've known many people. Like we would have these little stupid things at this big. When I worked at that big company with thousands of people, we would have these periodically. They like, oh, we're getting all the different teams together in a big room, and they'll all go up and present what they're working on on their team. And like for me, I was like, oh God, what a waste of time, you know, and we go there and it'd be my turn. I'm like, all right, everyone, here's what we're doing. Make some jokes and do the thing, whatever. Zero prep, just never nervous. Just get up there and it's only a couple hundred people at the most. Like who who cares, you know? And I knew other people that were like spending weeks preparing nervous rehearsing going over it and and this didn't count for your review it didn't matter for any like it zero effect on anything it's just like oh i didn't know uh you know i didn't know mary and john were working on that that's kind of cool i see you know it was sharing sharing time and uh and there were people they would they were so nervous and when they'd get up there they would be stiff and their voice would crack and they would have all that because they were just in front of people but i was like I remember talking to him like, you did great. And they're like, oh, it was terrible. It was the most stressed out I've ever been. I'm like, you did great. <laughs> what was the problem? They're like, I just, I don't like speaking in front of people. I'm like, right, but these are your friends. You know, like some people slip into um, almost like, not a fugue state, but like almost like this kind of slightly altered state. Very. I've had that feeling where like, I, you know, like say like, for example, I've been like, I interviewed uh, John Hodgman uh, a few years ago for City Arts and Lectures, this uh, local series that's on KQED. And I, I was pretty nervous about it. I mean, I wasn't like super nervous about it, but I thought about it a lot. I really didn't want to screw it up. And like, it was funny because like once it was done, it's like, it, it felt like it was like five minutes long. And I was like, oh, are, are we done already? And that, that's, a, that's a common feeling for me when, when I, uh, the turn where, where it may have turned out to not be horrible is when it went really fast. It's when it goes really slow. It's when you still have uh, two and a half hours to the Harry Potter party and nothing else to do. Where you go, right. wow. Right. But sometimes that's a good signal to me that like it didn't suck is like I'm still alive and it went fast. <laughs> Could you tell me about um, something else that you like? Yeah, this is our last one. It's uh, it's just works. If it's, This is so simple and so easy and I love it. If you want to grow your business and not your busy work, use just works. They take care of all the benefits, all the payroll and all the HR created by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. Because they want to make it easy for you to do all this stuff that take it from me, even with like a couple, uh, one full-time and a couple part-time people, like it's, uh, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. They do benefits, payroll, and tons of HR tools. So like you can do things like vendor payments, automatic tax collection, direct deposit, payroll, reporting, like all of this stuff that we as, as people who just like to make stuff don't want to ever think about but there are human mm-hmm. beings who don't mind it and they've built this really really great system just works and actually the url you're going to go to is justworks.com slash back to work justworks.com slash back to work and the code you'll use is back to work and if you use that code you'll get 15 percent off your first year you know take that tedious time-consuming part of your job and make it the 15% simplest of your first year yes that's a lot of percent. Dan. It is. It's a big percent. So go check it out. And uh, and getting started takes about like three minutes. So go check it out. Justworks.com slash back to work. Code back to work for 15% off. 401k. Mise en place. Mise en place. That, was, that turned out so much better than I expected. I thought I never expected it to be bad. No, I didn't expect that. Um, but I don't know. It's... It, it, it's 
It is interesting. And like, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, as, as soon as you try and provide an example of anything, you'll find five examples to the contrary. But that's just, you know, one day I want to do a show on the phrase, the exception that proves the rule, because I've never understood what that means. Oh, it's the exception that proves the rule. Yeah. What does that mean? What does that mean? Everybody says it like they understand what it means. And I feel like a dummy. So maybe I'll Google that, but I don't know what that means. Can I say one thing on a, on a, on a somewhat personal note? Go ahead, caller. Thank you. Uh, first time uh, self complimenter. <laughs> uh, we got a lot of nice emails. We got one kind of cranky email from a guy who thinks we don't like God. Yes. But, uh, we got a lot of really nice. <laughs> I'm sorry for leaving you with that impression. Uh, I'm not judging your life decision, sir. Um, we got a lot of nice emails and toots and stuff from people about last week's episode. And I wanted to say thank you to everybody for sending the notes and the anecdotes that they did. It's, I think, I feel like I'm really, really proud of last week's episode and the response from it has been incredibly warm and gratifying. And I just wanted to say, I want to say, well, on the one hand, yeah, it's a really good episode. Tell your friends about it. Like that's maybe not a bad first episode to listen to if, if you're looking for something to tell people about, but thank you very much. Like from the bottom of my heart, thank you for the nice notes from people. Um, it was, it was amazing. Surprising. Maybe like, I never know. I never know if it's any good, but you know, it's, um, I've said this like three times in the last week now that this show is really about feeling like a terrible person and not being sure what to do about it. Like almost (laughs) everything we ever talk about. I think you're right. Comes down to feeling like you're a terrible person and, and not being sure what to do about it. So maybe you learn to use your pencil more efficiently, but like there's other things to solving these impossible problems. And I don't know. I, I felt really gratified and happy. Um, with what people said. It's awesome. It's awesome. Yeah. Are you trying to get rid of me? No. We should go. You're, um, you've got are, the heart out. I, I'm, here, I I'm here all out. day. Woo. I'm here all day. I gotta, yeah, I gotta go. I gotta go talk about, uh, you know, the internet and stuff. Are you giving a talk? Are you nervous? I'm super nervous. <laughs> <laughs> Any, do, you have any, do you have any life hacks for people who are nervous about giving talks on stage? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> I, I, would, I would suggest drinking very, very heavily. When I say <laughs> drinking heavily, I'm saying you get a handle of something brown <laughs> and you turn it upside down. <laughs> yeah. Pound sign life hack. Yeah. Guess button this up. I love you. Love you too, Merlin, man.